From Georgetown University, this is Seeking Peace. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Ziadine Yosefzai. I'll tell the men that patriarchy is something that it is not only harmful for the girls, it's also harmful for the men. Societies who don't believe in their women and girls, they walk with one leg. Ziadin Yosefzai is a Pakistani educator and ardent advocate for girls' education. He's also the father of Nobel Peace Prize winner Malala Yosefzai. After Malala was attacked by the Taliban in retaliation for speaking about girls' rights to go to school, Ziadin helped her establish the Malala Fund. Together, they worked to break down barriers keeping other girls from attending school. Thank you to my father for not clipping my wings and for letting me fly. Ziodin also serves as a UN special advisor on global education. We reached Ziodin at his home in the UK to speak about men's role in promoting girls' rights and gender equality. It's a great pleasure and honor to be speaking with you I tell people that uh, being a daughter's father, and especially Malala's father, I feel so honored and so grateful. She is just a remarkable young woman. You know, she often talks about the fact that you were determined to give her every opportunity that a boy would have in your society. How did you proceed? Did you get questioned by other men in the community? Uh, Yes. In the beginning, when... I was encouraging Malala uh, not just to be an educated girl, but to be a girl who is a girl known by her own name. Because I had five sisters and none of my five sisters had an opportunity to receive education. And uh, at that time, we had hardly any school for girls. But also, my parents did not have any big dream for my sisters. They had very tall dreams for me, Uh, because I was a boy. And uh, for my five sisters, their only dream was to get them married as early as possible. So coming from that patriarchal society, being in that patriarchal family, our people could see the change in my behavior. Uh, I often tell the story that when Malala was born and she was hardly a few weeks uh, after her birth, Uh, my cousin brought a family tree. And um, when I looked at the family tree, it was a long list for 400 years. And they were all men. And I picked up my pen and drew a line from my name and wrote Malala. I could see the disapproval on his face that he was thinking of me that I was a crazy man putting a girl name on a family tree. Uh, So these were the things in the beginning that people did not like in me. But once they saw the impact of a girl and or activism, uh, I think later on, same people joined us. It's such a graphic description of what it uh, was like in terms of attitudes. But you were teaching uh, at an all-girls school in Pakistan while Malala was growing up. Is that right? Uh, Yes. So the school I started, it had... Uh, a girls' campus and a boys' campus. Uh, In the beginning, uh, girls and boys up to grade 9 and 10 were together, 
uh, but unfortunately, when Talibanization started, uh, so we had a pressure uh, from those circles that we must separate girls and boys. So at that stage in 2003-04, uh, we had a girls' high school and a boys' high school. So when the Taliban took over, were girls still able to go to school? I mean, the way they discouraged girls and then they started bombing schools, it's quite a story because in the beginning in 2003-04, they started an FM radio. And that was the beginning of Talibanization. And um, they just um, started a heinous propaganda against girls' education. And uh, the chief of the Taliban, uh, he used to give sermons and speeches and most often he started speaking against girls' education. So he wanted to demotivate parents to send their girls to school. And like he used to say in his speeches, he used to name the girls even on his FM radio that, for example, Khadija, Aisha, these girls from that particular area, they have left school in grade five, in grade seven, and I congratulate them because uh, this education, modern education is un-Islamic and these girls are very brave uh, that they uh, quit the school and this will bring blessing to their families in this world and in the afterwards. So, I mean, these were the kind of um, uh, uh, things uh, they were uh, doing in the um, uh, beginning. Uh, later on in 2007, uh, Taliban became very violent and they burned more than 400 schools. And in December 2008, uh, they gave an announcement on their FM radio that no girl will be allowed to go to school, old or young, no girl at all. And if she goes to school, the parents and the manager or the principal of the school will be responsible. So in the context of that very difficult situation that you uh, just described to us, Mal- Malala was speaking out publicly about girls' right to go to school, to have an education. I'm sure that obviously made her a target uh, by some of the, the Taliban. Were you worried about her speaking out? So what happened, basically, the problem was Taliban was so horrible and their fear was so big that nobody wanted to speak. There were few, hardly few people who spoke for the right of peace and the right of education. Uh, and I was one of them. And some of our friends were killed by Taliban. They were killed in target killing. I received threats from Taliban on their FM radio. So in that very environment, when we were speaking, Malala also started speaking. And then she started the BBC blog. And then later on, uh, we together did the New York Times documentary class dismissed in the Swat Valley uh, that captures the last day when the schools were closed uh, by Taliban. So in the beginning, I was not much concerned. It was more about me. And uh, it was an error of judgment on my behalf uh, that I took it for granted that uh, Taliban have bombed and burnt more than 400 schools, but they didn't harm a child or a teacher. In 2012, January, it was for the first time that uh, I received the Taliban had issued a threat to Malala and to one other human rights activist 
and they said that they are in their target. She just said that she wanted education. Education was her right. So we did not uh, think that they will come after a girl and after a child because in Pashtun culture, even in tribal fights, you are not supposed to attack a child and a girl. Uh, so, I mean, culturally, uh, from Islamic point of view, we, we took it for granted, but we were wrong and they came for the worst. And so eventually, Malala took a bullet for a girl's right to go to school. And you lived through that harrowing experience, not knowing if she would survive. Uh, and thank God uh, she did. Uh, but it must have been just uh, some horrible, horrible moment for you and the family. Yeah, of course. It was uh, the most uh, traumatic, the most tragic day in our life. Uh, because uh, that very day on uh, 9 October 2012, uh, it was a normal day, like all days, uh, in a sense that she took half of the egg uh, in the morning and... Um, uh, we had quite nice chat uh, at our breakfast and then she rushed to school because that was the second day of her examination. I went to school and from school I went to the press club because uh, I was the president of the uh, school's association and we were uh, like demonstrating uh, a rally over there and um, being the president I was the last speaker. So before my speech, uh, I switched off my phone. And meanwhile, my close friend received a call from my school and he was told uh, that something has happened. And then my friend told me that uh, your school bus has been attacked. Those news were uh, like the most horrible news. Uh, my heart sank and uh, I went to the podium. I spoke for a few minutes and then I told the gathering that I have an emergency and I have to rush to the hospital. And then I was told by another friend on phone uh, that uh, the school bus has been attacked and Malala and the two other girls have received uh, bullets. Um, I rushed to the hospital and um, when I saw Malala, I just kissed her on her forehead, on her uh, cheeks and I left my home uh, definitely with the hope that in the afternoon I will go back to home but this uh, never happened. From the press club I went to the hospital in Mingora. Uh, from Mingora she was flown in helicopter to Peshawar Army Hospital and there uh, she got the life-saving surgery uh, that saved her life. Well, it's just a, a remarkable story that out of such a terrible tragedy, she has survived and she's gone on now to get her university degree from Oxford. You must be so proud of her. And she has vowed that she will continue the fight that she started when she spoke out there in Swat Valley, that every girl should go to school. So you have stood by her. You have been her strongest support. She has set up the Malala Fund. Can you tell us about the fund and what you are doing with her today? Yes. I mean, as you mentioned that the girl who was speaking for 50,000 girls when Taliban banned girls' education in the Swat Valley, 
is now standing up for 130 million girls all around the world and speaking for their right to education. The terrorists thought that they would change my aims and stop my ambitions. But nothing changed in my life except this. Weakness, fear, and hopelessness died. Strength, power, and courage was born. She was unstoppable in SWAT, and she was unstoppable after the attack. And that's why when she was even in the hospital, and we had, uh, like, she started conversations, and she got recovered. Uh, in the very early days, she was more resilient and uh, uh, braver. She continued her mission, and we together co-founded the Malala Fund. This fund. Its vision is that every girl should have a, an access to quality education, that she may choose her future, and girls should learn and lead. The fund in the last five years has grown very uh, strong, and um, right now we are working in almost eight countries. And now uh, when Malala graduated from Oxford, as you mentioned, uh, now she herself has taken the charge as the chair of the fund. Uh, and I'm so proud of her that at such a young age, uh, now she is leading a global non-profit organization for girls' education. And her dream is to see every girl, every girl in every corner of the world in school. Well, you have been an extraordinary uh, supporter to your daughter and her work uh, as you've described it, is so critically important. And I know this cause has gotten complicated in recent months because of the pandemic. I know that the fund has uh, estimated that some 10 million secondary age girls, um, they may not return to school. It's even more difficult in those fragile states and refugee camps. Uh, and so the work is that much more needed and I'm sure that you have doubled your efforts in that regard. Oh, yes, indeed. I mean, this is very unprecedented and very difficult time uh, for everyone. And uh, especially it's difficult time for education and girls' education. Uh, that's why we need to double our efforts, our struggle, uh, and to highlight that girls' education, this is so important. Uh, and that's why uh, we are reaching to world leaders, we are reaching to organizations uh, that obviously, of course, uh, health is the most important issue, uh, but uh, we should not ignore education in general and girls' education in particular, because this is the most important investment. Uh, we have research together with the World Bank. It was done before pandemic in 2018. Uh, two years ago, and it tells that if we educate all girls in the world, primary and secondary, uh, we will add up to $30 trillion to world's economy. So you can see that girls' education is very transformative. It helps economies, it helps social uh, values, it brings equality, it helps democracies, it brings peace. Uh, we should be mindful of this fact. Absolutely. And you said that in such a compelling way 
Before we close this wonderful conversation, I wanted to ask you about um, yourself, your own example. Uh, You have been an inspiration to fathers everywhere, I dare say, Uh, but you've also been a tremendous support, a male champion, if you will, for progress for women and girls. I read an article, Mr. Yosef Say, in which you wrote in time uh, that you didn't hear the word feminist until you were 45 years old. But I'm wondering, why is that so important? What do you have to say to your um, fellow males uh, around the world about its importance? What I say, I say from my own experience. I was uh, one of the brothers of five sisters in a very patriarchal society in a village in the north of Pakistan. And education changed me. Education transformed me into the kind of person that I am now. I remember how much important education, my education was to my parents. But my five sisters did not receive an education. And uh, they were even smarter than me. Uh, They could be doctors, engineers, they could be pilots, they could be politicians, leaders. But as they did not receive education, their life ended in a different way. They became mothers very early. Uh, They have children now. And that's why I tell that in many parts of the world, in patriarchal societies, women and girls die as if they were never born. So I believe in education for change. And I have seen this change in my life. The cousin who was critical uh, for entering a girl name of family tree as the biggest supporter. The village where I grew up, I didn't see any girl to be going to school. Right now, there are 500 girls, the first generation of girls who are receiving quality education. It gives me hope. And I can see this change. And I'll tell the men that patriarchy, it is not only harmful for the girls, It's also harmful for the men. Uh, Societies who don't believe in their women and girls, they walk with one leg. When you believe in girls' education, in women empowerment, and gender equality, it not only emancipates women, it liberates men. Beautifully said, and it has been wonderful speaking with you today, Mr. Yosef Say. Uh, and I, I just want to say, you're not just an eloquent uh, spokesperson for the Malala Fund, for the work of your daughter that you have both been so deeply committed to, but also an important example of a men's leadership and support and the importance of men championing these issues. So thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for all that you'll continue to do. Please extend our best wishes to dear Malala and Godspeed in all that you do. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Thank you so much. This year, Malala graduated with a degree in philosophy, politics, and economics from Oxford University. And the Malala Fund published a report about girls' education and COVID-19, stating that 10 million secondary school-age girls who were in school before the pandemic, will likely not return. 
You can find out more about the obstacles for girls' education and support the Education Champion Network mission at Malala.org. Today's interview was produced by Laura Ubate. If you like what you heard, please share it far and wide. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening app or at SeekingPeacePodcast.com. In our next episode, we'll meet 27-year-old Mukadesa Ahmadzai. As a poet, activist, and aspiring member of parliament, Mukadesa risks her life every day by spreading messages of peace in Taliban strongholds across Afghanistan. In terms of security, I work in the Eastern Zone, and the Taliban and ISIS are present here. I'm very bothered and disturbed by this. Due to these security concerns, I hide my face from the general public and the media. I fight, I work, and as I'm performing my activism and my work, I do not want to become a target. Because if I get killed, then my activism will remain unfinished and left behind. That's next time on Seeking Peace. The second season of Seeking Peace is a production of Georgetown University's Institute for Women, Peace, and Security and Adonde Media in collaboration with Our Secure Future. I'm your host, Milan Verveer. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear another podcast featuring impressive women, We recommend Encyclopedia Womanica, brought to you by Wonder Media Network. This podcast introduces the women pioneers, scientists, artists, and more who have shaped our society throughout history. In five-minute episodes delivered daily, host Jenny Kaplan dives into the trials, tragedies, and triumphs of this diverse group of groundbreaking women. Subscribe to Encyclopedia Womanica wherever you get your podcasts. To achieve better security outcomes, women have to be at the center of decision-making, all decision-making. Hi, I'm Sahana Dharmapuri, director of Our Secure Future. Women make the difference. We believe that when women tell their stories, they change the world. We know that diverse voices lead to more inclusive and better solutions for everyone. That's why Our Secure Future supports this season of Seeking Peace. Help us change the world, one story at a time. Listen to what women say about making a more peaceful and secure future.